Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Tom Galvin, Associate Professor of Resource Management, and this is the second in our special series titled, How Should the Army Run? Today's topic is the national fiscal process and situation and how it impacts the military. And with me in the studio today is uh, Douglas Muddy Waters, Associate Professor of DOD Systems, and who has been the lesson author for the lesson that we do in the Defense Management course on the national fiscal process. Uh, welcome to the studio, Muddy. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. So let's uh, start with basic question, because uh, a lot of our students come to the War College without a lot of background in the fiscal process. They appreciate it. They're aware of it. And some of them have worked in jobs that touch it, but don't have, they don't necessarily have the depth and understanding. Uh, why is it important for our students to understand the national uh, fiscal process? Well, I, it, I mean, it's, it controls everything they do, essentially. I mean, we, we get our authorities and we get our uh, appropriations resources for what the Department of Defense needs to do, what the Army needs to do. And if we don't have those, we uh, obviously can't function. So an understanding of the process is important uh, because uh, without it, uh, we can't do our job. Now, clearly, there are a lot of nuances associated with the federal budget system. Um, you know, most of our students don't need to get to become experts by any means, but they need to understand a few things like authorization versus appropriation or budget versus program. Uh, you know, what is a, what is a continuing resolution do to us? Uh, those sort of things that will impact them uh, in whatever bill that they have post-war college. Now, we actually spend time in the lesson talking about the difference between appropriations and authorizations. Uh, what's, what's the deal there? Yeah, it's, it's the way Congress has things set up. Um, they decided early on that uh, they were not going to have right policy or law in appropriations bills. Uh, and so they, they decided to have two separate functions. They have authorization committees and they have appropriation committees. And for uh, DOD to operate, uh, both are in play. So, you know, what's an authorization? It, I mean, it does just that. It authorizes you to do something, to, to enter into some sort of activity, uh, to uh, start a weapons system, uh, anything of that nature. Now, that's great. You can have that, that, that authority, but you also need the resources to fund it. And that's where the appropriation comes in. Uh, that gives you the actual uh, budget authority that you can obligate in order to uh, apply against that program that's been authorized. And ideally, you will have both. You'll have both an authorization and you'll have both an appropriation for whatever you want to do. Now, there are some times when you don't have both. Uh, it's just to simplify things. Generally, uh, if you don't, you need that appropriation, you've got to have that before you obligate the government um, because then you can get into anti-deficiency issues, et cetera. 
so DOD generally will spend up to the appropriated amount, even if there isn't an authorization. And why does that happen? Sometimes uh, authorizations expire and it's not that Congress doesn't want that activity to continue. Uh, they just haven't gotten around to reauthorize it. So uh, you can sometimes have that, that uh, uh, split there, but most of the time you're going to have both. And, but the important thing is make sure you have the appropriation uh, before you start spending and obligating government funds. Now, another interesting point is that when the money comes to DOD through the appropriations, it's, it, it comes in different colors of money. And there's a different perspective between how the DOD or the defense enterprise sees the colors of money versus how the appropriations come in. This is, you mentioned the program versus the budget perspective. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, Congress has uh, various different types of appropriations. And this all comes from, you know, Article One of the Constitution. You know, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Obviously, the Congress does that, and they determine what those appropriations are going to be. And they've determined that the best way for them to do oversight is to split it up into various categories that make sense to them. may not make total sense to us, but uh, it doesn't matter. We're responding to them to get resources. So, you know, they have things like procurement. They have operations and maintenance, which most of our students are very familiar with because that's O&M type funding is what they use in their units for operations. You know, we have military uh, uh, construction, you have mil PERS, military personnel. So you have these different flavors or colors of money that come over in, uh, in the appropriations. The building, the, the services tend to like to think more in, in a programmatic lens. So uh, they'll take a look at an activity or just say a weapons program is probably the easiest thing to, to, to describe, to say it's a tank or, a, or an armored vehicle of some sort. You know, the program view of that is to look at what is going to be required to take that from inception, development, research, test, evaluation, procurement, and then all the way through operations and sustainment, and then even all the way to the D-mill at the end when you're going to get rid of that, uh, that uh, um, weapon system. So you need to take into account all of the different types of funding that are going to be required for that program when you're, when you're looking at that, that programmatic lens. So program managers concerned about, you know, the operations and maintenance funding you'll need obviously early on research development, tests and evaluation funds. And then as they start to get into production, they're going to need procurement dollars and, and they lay that out over the, the course of the, of the program. When we go to request our funds from Congress, though, they want the, the, the budget submission in that appropriation language. So we have a thing called the POM, the Program Objective Memorandum, which all the services have, which is a five-year look of their programs and activities. And then they take the, the, the first year of that and they translate it into budgetary language and all those different appropriation types. And that's what actually goes over to the Hill. This means that some things... Uh, can be a bit confusing. Like, for example, when we think of personnel, we like to think of all of our personnel and, and manage talent in a particular way. But even military personnel and civilian personnel and contracted personnel are coming to us from different colors of money, which then makes things rather complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. It does complicate things. As I mentioned, there's a MIL-PERS or military personnel funding, but there's no CIV-PERS. 
So, you know, how do you track civilian pay? That, that generally comes out of operations and maintenance funds, but not entirely. If, if you have a civilian who's in a lab, um, he may actually, be, or he or she may actually be paid out of RDT and E funding. Uh, so you have to you have to kind of keep track of that separately. You have, you have both your military personnel um, folks that you track within the program, then you also have to account for the civilians and any contractors, and they're they're all paid in different ways. Uh, which, you know, ideally we'd like to be able to to do it just through one one way to do it, so we can track uh, exactly what our personnel costs are. But but that's not the reality of, of how the system's set up. Now taking a step back to the national process itself. Um, I know when we're talking about the defense budget, it tends to be in some pretty large numbers, you know, $600, $700 billion. Now, we can put that in context with, say, mandatory spending and discretionary spending and interest, uh, because that's the, that also drives the process. Why, for example, the Defense Department has to go submit for its budget on an annual basis. Uh, it also uh, perhaps uh, makes us look like we're just so huge, and yet we're always asking for more money. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's actually an important point that we are trying to get across to the students with this, with the lesson when we talk about the federal budget is is kind of to set the fiscal context for them, which is going to play out as the Department of Defense tries to make strategy-informed resource decisions. And I, everybody's pretty well aware that we've got a bit of a debt problem. I mean, some people differ on how severe it is, uh, depending on their their theoretical uh, bent. But uh, uh, it, it, I like to point it out within within the, the class why this is happening, how it's happening, and what, what are the implications for that. So you look at funding. There's you know those three types of uh, spending that uh, the government does mandatory, which is essentially your entitlement spending, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. You've got discretionary spending, which is what DOD is funded. Uh, and most of the things that you think about that the federal government does, you know, treasury, department of state, et cetera, that's all discretionary funds. And it's divided into defense discretionary and non-defense discretionary. And the important point to make is that DOD takes up half, roughly, maybe slightly over half of all those discretionary funds. So whenever someone's looking for cost savings over on the Hill, DOD is frequently the first place you go because that's where the money is when we talk about robbing banks. Uh, Most of the money is in the mandatory side, but those, uh, those don't go, they're not subject to annual appropriations. They're actually put in place in by authorizing committees who, who pass a law and then Essentially, mandatory programs are on on autopilot. Congress can go in and adjust them, but they don't have to. And if they do nothing, they just continue to to proceed. Generally, there's a formula. Think of Social Security. How long have you worked? What was your income level? How old are you? All that gets plugged into a formula and outspits your entitlement. And that just continues on and on unless Congress proactively acts. For the appropriations for discretionary Every year that has to be done. And if it doesn't, we end up in situations, which I know we'll probably talk about, of either a continuing resolution or a government shutdown. So, um, and then then you also have interest on the debt as that third part. And what's been happening uh, from roughly the 1970s on as the impact of the Great Society programs 
uh, have been uh, being felt within the budget. Uh, the uh, the a share of the spending, federal spending for discretionary, has been shrinking, and the mandatory has been growing, and it's to some extent perhaps squeezing discretionary accounts. And the latest thing that's happening with uh, the, the, the amount of debt that we are accrued and now interest rates are rising again. CBO has been worried about this for a while and now it's finally happening in response to inflation. You have that interest wedge growing greatly, which is further putting pressure on discretionary accounts. And it's important for our students to see that and to, to realize that unless somehow uh, we get uh, both, uh, you know, the executive and the legislative branch together, and they come up with some sort of grand bargain to deal with the rising deficit and debt. The outlook for defense spending over time is not particularly rosy. There's going to be a lot of downward pressure. Yeah, there'll probably be times where uh, funding will come uh, up based on national security uh, events, but generally the, the the pressure is going to be downward on those discretionary accounts and that obviously has implications for dod being able to to meet the requirements of, of the strategy that they've been been told to do so it's important that they understand kind of what the the trends are and then what the drivers of those are which are primarily those mandatory programs and interest on the debt now is there anything they can do about that no, but they need to be aware that they probably should not be planning for robust defense budgets, you know, decades uh, to on and on, because uh, the reality is there's probably going to be uh, some some cuts in defense or perhaps we'll just stay, uh, stay uh, fairly level. We know we've got a, a new Republican Congress that came in and the Freedom Caucus has got some influence now, and they're already talking about the, the debt limit. Uh, that's coming up later in the year and probably trying to use that to push down government spending. So all of this is going to play out for defense and probably not in a way that our leadership would like. Now, you did mention continuous resolution. Uh, We probably should go there because that's something that uh, has tremendous immediate impacts on defense spending. Uh, Would you care to uh, go over some of those? Yeah, the the continuing resolution, we've gotten, the good news is DOD has gotten good at operating under continuing resolutions or CRs because we have to. They've been pretty pretty much the the business as usual for the past, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so. Uh, If Congress cannot meet the statutory timelines to uh, to get those appropriations into law at the end of the fiscal year, one of two things need to happen. I already mentioned them, they either have to put in place a continuing resolution, which basically sets spending at the same level as it was the prior fiscal year, or the government has to shut down uh, because there, there's no money. Obviously, the shutdown is, is worse than, than a continuing resolution, but the, the continuing resolution has issues. Um, most people are aware that when you're operating under a CR, you can't do any new starts. You can't start a new program, new activity, or anything of that nature. And that's obviously constraining on on DOD. Uh, The converse of that is also true. You can't divest anything that you're planning to get rid of to move resources somewhere else because you still have to fund it as as if it was last fiscal year. And if it was funded there, you have to continue to fund that program unless you can get Congress to agree to some sort of a a reprogramming action. Uh, If you just think about 
how CRs usually work is they are generally a series of short periods of time. Sometimes they end up going the entire fiscal year, which is uh, real problematic, but frequently they go a month and then they get extended two weeks and then maybe they get extended again. And then hopefully there's some sort of an appropriation, which unfortunately tends to be an omnibus appropriation at that point, which means they roll everything together in one giant bill. Uh, We just got one of those passed in December and there's all sorts of spending that can get in there. Um, but so if you have a series of, of, of CRs, you, you basically have to apportion out your spending rate across, say it's a one month CR. We have to take one month of, of spending from the prior fiscal year and, and prorate everything to that amount. If you have contracts or you're trying to hire people or you want to send people on travel, you have this CR that ends in just a, you know, less than a month and there's no guarantee you're going to get another one. So, you, so you have to continually redo contracts. Um, gen- people will slow down hiring because it's very difficult to do when you have these separate and distinct CRs that, that, that get put in place. And it's just become, it's very inefficient uh, for the department of defense. So it's something that uh, our leadership would love to see go away. They'd love to have more budgetary stability. Uh, the vice uh, chairman, of the joint chiefs of staff, uh, Paul Selva, several years ago, told the hell flat out, I, I'll take a cut in my top line if you can just guarantee me that I'll have budgetary stability over a period of time uh, because it's inefficient and it's it's difficult to work around. And then there's also the issue of uh, overseas contingency operations versus base budget. Um, I mean, the way that the system is supposed to work is that the base budget is what the department uses as, you know, in order to fund readiness, modernization, and force structure ordinarily. And then when we have a contingency, then a separate pool of money is provided for that. Now, that leads to potential tensions where the overseas contingency operations, or OCO as it's it's known, when that comes to the point of going away, some of the things that we may have funded with OCO funding, we become dependent upon and has to be moved into the base budget, ideally. Now, that's how clean is that process? Uh, yeah, well, we, we've had to go ahead and, and do that. Um, I think it was last fiscal year, or was it the one prior? Um, there was no OCO as part of the, of the budget. There's still some supplemental appropriations that are being put out, uh, but the they're trying to get away from the OCO. Interesting the way OCO has, has changed over over the years, whether, whether it was OCO or whether it was GWAT or whether it was just called a, an emergency supplemental. In prior conflicts, all the way back to the Korean War, what you would see is you would see in the early years, the first couple of years, you'd see that supplemental funding being applied. And then you would see the base budget rise up to meet the requirements of that contingency. And the, and the supplementals would stop. During uh, the, the uh, OIF, OEF period, uh, that did not happen. We never had the base. The base budget did go up, but it never went up enough to account for the requirements of, of uh, the supplemental. A couple of different reasons for that. One, uh, Congress kind of liked that. If You mentioned the Budget Control Act earlier, which basically set caps, budgetary caps that you had to abide by. And if you exceeded that, then there was a sequester, which is just basically a salami slice across the board cut 
on all your programs and activities that, that were subject to it. Obviously not good. Well, OCO was not, didn't come under that scrutiny. So if you got money into OCO, you didn't have to worry about Budget Control Act caps. So that was a means for Congress to continue to fund things and also to put some things in there that might help out their districts, et cetera, uh, with uh, less oversight during the, the normal budget process. Now, to be fair, DOD wasn't clean in this either. Uh, DOD knew that uh, that this method was out there, and it was they began to put things that normally should be in the base budget into OCO funds, and they could convince Congress of that, and most of the time they could. Uh, they could get additional top line uh, through the supplemental appropriation. All of that was a big concern um, because over time, more and more base activities were being funded in OCO. And uh, so in order to rectify that, the, obviously the base budget had to be brought up and or some things had to be, we had to stop doing. And, uh, and that process has, has been playing out over the past few years. Uh, I, I don't know what the future of OCOs will be. If we have some other national security crisis breakout, you'll probably see supplemental appropriations being requested by DOD because we don't plan for those things. I mean, we know they might happen, but we don't know when or where. So uh, that that hasn't been budgeted for. And if it's a fairly large um, depo- you know, employment of military force, uh, we're going to request resources for it. The question is, will it play out like it did in the historical use of supplementals? where we'll do that for little and then, then the defense budget will be adjusted appropriately, or will we play this OCO versus base game again? Now, you mentioned that uh, uh, in, in your view, the Department of Defense has gotten pretty good at kind of overcoming these exigencies. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Like, uh, what is what are some of the things that the department has been doing well to keep this from really having a significant impact on on the military? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's become routine. So there, uh, DOD tends to now plan that there will be a CR. Uh, one of the, one of the major things that's been done is, uh, is most people have, have moved contract, uh, expiration or contract start dates out of the first quarter of the fiscal year, uh, because they know there's, we're likely to be operating under a CR. And so why try and have a contract start then, you know, you're going to have problems. So it's, it's a lot of small things like that. Um, where because you're planning for it and anticipating it, you, you, can, you can set um, some of your activities and spending in, in a manner that, that will allow you to get through it uh, more efficiently than, than, you, than if you were caught off guard. Uh, still doesn't mean that it doesn't force inefficient practices. It does. Just think of the, the amount of uh, time that comptrollers have to spend budget shops trying to track this. Uh, and making sure that we we don't overspend based on you know the the amount of or, or time of the CR. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of manpower that's been put into that 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 could be could be doing other things. So you know, there's going to be inefficiencies, and and as I said, activities tend to to not do things that they might normally do in the first quarter of the fiscal year uh, because of the anticipation of a CR. So you start you see, and actually, I just saw a chart the other day where obligation of funds in the first quarter is the lowest percentage over the entire year due to the CR. Of course, you tend to also see obligation the highest in the last quarter, especially for one-year money like O&M. 
I mean, obviously, this is this is a lesson that we teach our students. Um, not all of our students are going to be working in the middle of this process, um, but some will. So I guess the question I have is, what are the takeaways we want to impart to our budding senior leaders regarding those who are perhaps inside this loop, and, uh, who either are uh, career in the uh, career-wise in the comptroller or in the budgeting and programming communities versus those who uh, might not be in, uh, might go off to a combatant command or somewhere where this process affects them, but not so directly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, generally, you know, we want, we want awareness of, out of the students of, of how generally the process works. And then what are some of the key things that they should be aware of uh, at their level? Some of it has to do with, as we've already talked about, um, what are, what's the, the trends and the drivers in, in debt and deficit and what's that picture look like and what, is that, what does that look like for defense budgets going forward? Um, we, we, obviously, there's some problems there because we continue to accrue uh, deficits and the debt continues to get larger and larger. And that's, that's never good for, for somebody who's dependent on uh, annual appropriations. Uh, we want them to be aware a bit of how Congress works. Uh, Congress is obviously a key external stakeholder for the Department of Defense. Not only do they provide us uh, the resources that we need, but they have an oversight requirement that they're they're very serious about. And they set policy for DOD a lot of different ways through the generally through the National Defense Authorization Act. And then that's where, you know, things like uh, uh, a commander play in, in uh, non-judicial punishment or, or de- dealing with sexual assault and harassment, uh, taking the, the authority away from commanders and putting them to higher level legal uh, authorities, um, end strength, pay rates, uh, all sorts of things. Congress is, are, can set that policy and, and will do so. And so it makes it really important for those who are in DOD who have any sort of interface with Congress to understand that. Um, we need to engage Congress. Uh, we need to be aware of, of how we do that at different levels. Obviously, if you're the chief of staff of the Army or the secretary of the Army, you're dealing with you know, the, the head of the uh, authorization and appropriation committees. Uh, but if you are down lower in the system at the 06 GS-15 level, you're generally dealing with staffers. Staffers are really important to pay attention to and not not to uh, to ignore. Uh, you, people are, are aware of when staff DELs come out, delegations that come out to their uh, organization. Um, if, if, if you don't treat them well and if you don't... Uh, engage them in a way that is positive for the organization and, and the organization's message uh, that can come back and bite you because those staffers are the ones who actually are working the details. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not the congressman or senator who's, who's writing uh, legislation or, or going through a, a program briefs and the Hill, it's the staffers and they have a lot of influence over the member because of that. So you want to make sure that you engage them. Uh, and, and I like to remind my students that, you know, a professional staffer over on the Hill is the equivalent of a two-star uh, when it comes to uh, precedence. So you, you want to treat them with respect, even if they're only about 28 years old, uh, which can be a little odd for a colonel. But uh, so we want them to be aware of, 
what the trends are. We want to be aware of how generally how Congress operates. We want them to be aware of how DOD interfaces with Congress. And then we want them to be aware of, of the importance of good stewardship of the resources that they are given. Uh, because if, if we don't do a good job with that, Congress is going to react and they're going to react in a negative way. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the professional staff members because uh, many of them also have a lot of experience in in Congress and uh, have been there for quite some time. Any other uh, thoughts that you have uh, about the national fiscal process and what our students should take away? It's just good to be aware that there's there's trends in all of this. You know, if you think about um, dealing with uh, Congress, dealing with the federal budget process, and and we always say we always think of Congress, but really it's it's the president and the Congress in the federal budget process. They both have to uh, work together, and but frequently they're in conflict if they're in different parties. So you have a whole phase of conflict versus resolution in the process, and to some degree, we're we're kind of at the end of that, um, uh, dealing with uh, some of the issues that come up if. Um, both sides can't come to the table and, and come to a conclusion. We end up with a CR or, you know, maybe a government shutdown, which I've been through a few of those. Um, you know, these things are going to happen. We have to be aware of it. We don't have to like it. But, um, uh, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's conflict resolution. Um, things that are in play are, are uh, process versus politics versus policy. Um, all of those, you know, the, the the, uh, the politics and the process can can cause conflict, but they can also be part of what brings us to resolution. And then every once in a while, you're going to have big policy shifts. You know, we we've seen this, um, you know, the Goldwater Nichols Act or something of that nature that's going to radically change the way DoD operates. And these things happen from time to time too. So the st- students just need to be aware of these and they need to track it. They, they need to stay engaged with what's going on over on the Hill and what, what's going on uh, within politics. It doesn't mean they should be partisan by any means. Uh, they should be completely nonpartisan, but they have to understand the over the politics is that overlays what's going on because their bosses are, are aware of this and need, need to be aware of it as they shape their professional military advice uh, so if you want to serve your boss well, you need to be able to think like your boss or your boss's boss. And political dimensions are part of the decision-making at the highest levels of DOD. You just have to be aware of that. That's a that's an excellent uh, stopping point. Uh, in a future episode of this series, we'll probably dive into uh, how the Defense Department manages its programming and budgeting internally in response to the national situation. But for now, thank you very much, uh, Muddy, for uh, for joining us on the War Room. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Tom. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode in our special series, How Should the Army Run? We welcome your comments and suggestions for this and future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast on your podcatcher of choice. And once you have, please rate and review this episode so we can continue to deliver great content. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Tom Galvin. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.